0: For those of you who are new to Cornerstone today, because there's a couple new faces, um, one of our pastors, Matt Hershey, is uh, on sabbatical. He's about three weeks in or so, and he'll be on sabbatical for the next four months. And so at certain points throughout the sabbatical season that he is in and that we as Cornerstone are in, we're going to be taking time, like Sherry Lettison, to stop and be quiet, to pray about certain things um, regarding sabbatical, regarding Matt, regarding us as a body of Christ to Cornerstone. So that's kind of the backstory. If you're like, who's Matt? Who's that guy we were just praying for? He's one of our pastors, our dearly beloved brother.
1: So good morning, everybody.
0: Good morning. Good to see everybody here. Um, My stomach is still in the mend. As most of you know, I was in the hospital a couple weeks ago, so I'm going to be uh, sitting most of the time today just because it's more comfortable for me. It is not in disrespect to any of you. Maybe one or two of you, but mostly not anybody. Um, Today we are doing part two of the introduction to Jeremiah. Last week we went over Jeremiah, specifically the backstory of Jeremiah. How did we get to this place as we start in Jeremiah? What was the backstory? What was the history? We looked through some of the kings. We looked through the, the kings that both did evil, which was most of them, and even some that did good, such as Josiah, who brought about this reformation. Um, and how much their uh, contribution, whether for good or for evil, affected where we're at in Jeremiah. We also talked about the uh, one incredibly important word in the book of Jeremiah. Does anybody remember that word from last week? It's a Hebrew word? I had everybody say it like five times. Shubh. Everybody say shubh. And that, yeah, good, good be at the end of that. Um, and this is one of the words in Hebrew for turn. In the book of Jeremiah, one of the big uh, th- main threads that goes throughout all, all this book is, is the, are the people of God turning their faces towards God or are the people of God turning their backs to God? And there's this uh, poetry and this wordplay that Jeremiah uses over and over again basically saying if you're going to turn, actually turn to me. Don't make it some kind of superficial thing where we go through all of these external reformations, and yet in the end, our hearts, my heart, is not actually turned towards God. Um, So we're talking about exile in the book of Jeremiah, talking about a lot of stuff. It's going to be a couple videos today because um, there's no reason for me to create something brand new when there's something great out there for us to learn about. So today will be part two of Jeremiah, looking at the book and the person of Jeremiah, Did, did Each family get a sheet of illustrations, most people, okay? So you're going to want to keep those out, take a look at those, because you might not be able to see everything that is is on here. But it's still really important um, that you see all that. The first video we're going to watch is actually from the Bible Project. This is going to outline the book of Jeremiah so we can get a little bit more of a uh, way it was composed and the way it walks through the story of exile through Jeremiah. Um, 98% of this is right. There's some things I disagree with as far as numbers, as far as the commentary, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so it's a great resource. These videos are free. If you're ever interested in learning more about the simplistic baseline narrative of the Bible, uh, it's a great, it's a great thing to do. So we're going to watch this video first. It's about seven minutes. Uh, you can look at your little sheets. Uh, Gene and Jake if you want to get the video ready and then we'll move on from there.
1: The book of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was an Israelite priest who lived and worked in Jerusalem during the final decades of the kingdom of southern Judah. He was called as a prophet to warn Israel about the severe consequences of breaking their covenant with God through their idolatry and injustice. and He even predicted that the empire of Babylon would come as God's servant to bring this judgment on Israel by destroying Jerusalem taking the people into exile and sadly his words became reality. Jeremiah lived through the siege and destruction of Jerusalem and witnessed the exile personally. Now, this book came into existence in a really interesting way. Chapter 36 tells us that after 20 years of Jeremiah's preaching in Jerusalem, God called him to collect all of his sermons and poems and essays and commit them to writing, which Jeremiah did by employing a scribe named Baruch, who wrote down and compiled all of this material into a scroll. Now, Baruch also gathered lots of stories about Jeremiah, and he linked all the pieces together. And so this is why the book reads like an anthology, a collection of collections. It's all been arranged to present this prophet as a messenger of God's justice and grace. So the book begins with God calling Jeremiah to be a prophet and he's given a dual vocation. He will be a prophet to Israel but also to the nations. And his words will both uproot and tear down but also plant and build up. In other words, he's going to accuse Israel and warn them of God's coming judgment but he also has a message of hope for the future. Now this opening perfectly summarizes the first large section, chapters 1 to 24. It's a collection of Jeremiah's writings from before the exile. And the core idea here is that Israel has broken the covenant with God and violated all the terms of the agreement they made that are written in the Torah. And in a number of ways. They've adopted the worship of all kinds of Canaanite gods, building idol shrines all over the land. And Jeremiah develops the metaphor of idolatry as adultery and uses the language of prostitution, promiscuity, unfaithfulness to describe how Israel has given their allegiance to other gods. Jeremiah also repeatedly accuses Israel's leaders, the priests, the kings, the other prophets, have all become corrupt. They've abandoned the Torah and the covenant, which has led to a tragic result, rampant social injustice. The most vulnerable people in Israelite communities, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, were all being taken advantage of in clear violation of the laws of the Torah. And Israel's leaders didn't even seem to care. So a classic place where all of these ideas come together is in chapter Chapter 7, it's called Jeremiah's Temple Sermon. The Israelites are coming to worship their God in the temple, as if everything is just fine. But outside the temple, they are worshiping other gods. And some were even adopting the horrifying Canaanite practice of child sacrifice. And so Jeremiah makes his very unpopular announcement. The God of Israel is coming in judgment. He's going to destroy his own temple and punish Israel by sending an enemy from the north. This is an army that God would allow to conquer Jerusalem. And as you read on, you discover he's talking about the great empire of Babylon and so this all leads up to a transition in chapter 25 Israel hasn't turned back to their God and so in the first year of Babylon's new king Nebuchadnezzar God tells Jeremiah to announce that the Babylonian armies are headed for Israel and all of its neighbors to conquer them and take them into exile for 70 years. He compares Babylon to a cup of wine filled to the brim with God's just anger at all of Israel's injustice and idolatry. And God will make Israel and the nations drink from this cup. Now this chapter is key to the book's design because everything that follows is going to focus on Babylon's coming attack. First on Israel in chapters 26 to 45 and then on the other nations in chapters 46 to 51. The section about Israel first contains stories about how Jeremiah begged Israel to turn back, how he warned them right up to the last minute, but the leaders of Israel kept rejecting him. The section concludes with a large collection of stories about how Jerusalem was under siege and eventually destroyed by Babylon and about how Jeremiah was persecuted all through that time and eventually kidnapped and taken against his will to Egypt by a group of Israelite rebels. Now, right here in the middle, in between all of these dark stories of disaster and judgment is a collection of Jeremiah's messages of hope for Israel's future. So he picks up on Moses' prediction that after Israel had broken the covenant and gone into exile, see Deuteronomy 30, God would not abandon his people. Rather, he would renew his covenant with them and transform their hearts. Jeremiah develops this promise, and he says that God is going to one day inscribe the laws of the Torah, not on tablets, but rather on the hearts of his own people. He's going to heal their rebellion so that they can truly one day love and follow him fully. And so one day, Israel will return back to the land, and the Messiah from the line of David is going to come, and that's when all nations will come to recognize Israel's God as the true God. So these chapters are showing that despite Israel's apostasy, God is not going to let Israel's sin get the final word. Rather, his own faithfulness will bring about the fulfillment of his promises no matter what. After this, we find the large collection of poems about how God is going to use Babylon to judge the nations around Israel. So Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Edom, Ammon, Damascus, Hazor. But then, surprisingly, the longest poems are saved for last, and they're about God's coming judgment on Babylon itself. So although God used this nation to execute his justice, God doesn't endorse their violence and idolatry. And so Babylon too will come under the standard of God's justice. And so Jeremiah denounces this nation's pride and injustice as well. Now, Babylon is larger than life in these poems. And it reminds us of the image of Babylon all the way back from Genesis chapter 11. Babylon has become the archetypal rebellious nation. In their glorification of wealth and war, God's going to give this nation over to its own destruction. The book concludes with a story taken from the end of the book of 2 Kings. It tells about Babylon's final attack on Jerusalem, how they destroyed the city walls and burned the temple and took the people into exile. The story shows how Jeremiah's warnings of judgment from chapters 1-24 through were fulfilled. But then the chapter ends with a short story about the captive Israelite king, Jehoiakim, he's heir to the line of David. And the king of Babylon releases him from prison and shows him favor and invites him to eat at the royal table for the rest of his life. And that's how the book ends. So it's a little glimmer of hope. And this recalls Jeremiah's promises of hope from chapters 30 to 33. God hasn't abandoned his people or the promise of a future coming king from David's line. And so while this book contains a huge amount of warning and judgment, the final words conclude with a note of hope for the future. And that's what the book of Jeremiah is all about.
0: So that gives us a great... Flashy flash. That gives us a great little overview of the structure of Jeremiah and especially the idea that this is an anthology, that it's not in a chronological order. There's huge sections of the book of Jeremiah that are around a certain time. But as you read through, you can kind of see, well, this part came first in chapter 4, and yet this part over here in chapter 7 actually seems chronologically to be ahead of that. So as we as Cornerstone walk through the book of Jeremiah, um, we're going to take different sections of the book of Jeremiah and look at them. Um, Sherry mentioned about vacation I have a weird question for everybody who enjoys planning for vacation more than actually going on vacation I do Mark, yeah Jay kind of Everybody likes to go on vacation, right? But there's something for me about planning on going on vacation. Like, what could we possibly do going on this thing and setting up the hotels? What is the, the roadmap as far as how we're going to get there and all of that? I just love that stuff. And I enjoy being on vacation, Naomi. Yeah, I know. She's like, what? But there's like something about like the trip planning and everything else. That's the stage of Jeremiah that we're, that we're in right now. We're not creating anything on a canvas yet. We're just forming the canvas that as we walk through the book of Jeremiah, we'll have this, this thing that we can have context to. So as we, Cornerstone, walk through the book of Jeremiah, we're going to go through multiple sections at a time. First, it'll be the section of history and overview, which is what we're doing now. Next week, Barry is going to give a military and um, nationalistic view of what's going on during the exile, of what countries and nations are coming in and out, power, how does that play into the story of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. After that, um, uh, uh, Nikki is actually going to share a little bit about the covenant theology of Jeremiah linked way back to Deuteronomy and the importance of that. So right now we're kind of in the history and overview. Afterwards, we're going to look at oracles and sermons and judgments of Jeremiah. Oracles is just simply, I, as a prophet, received a word from God, Jeremiah. So Jeremiah speaks to God. And and Jeremiah then speaks to the people. Those are oracles. He also has sermons, whether it's in the temple, whether it's on the streets. And then he's also pronouncing a lot of judgment, as the video also said. So we're going to look at all of these kind of in one sitting. Not one Sunday, but like in in a season of life. We're then going to look around the uh, time of Christmas and time of Epiphany, of uh, the book of Consolation. This is the hope part of Jeremiah. Again, there's a ton of judgment. There's a ton of wreckage in Jeremiah. And yet, all throughout, there's scattered these little bits of hope and of restoration, even in the midst of heartache and tension between God and his people. But then in this section of Jeremiah 30 through 33, there's this big chunk of hope, which Jeremiah talks about the new covenant. God talks to Jeremiah about the new covenant that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. After that, uh, probably over the season of Lent, we're going to go through the confessions and the lamentations of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the most human prophet we have record of in the book of the Bible. There's Isaiah, there's Daniel, there's Ezekiel. They're all humans. But really in Jeremiah, we really see his heart breaking and grieving and wrestling with God about the word that he has been given to give. He really struggles with the exile that's coming and with the judgment. He understands it, but yet it's breaking his heart. He doesn't necessarily know what to think at times, and yet he continues to walk faithfully in the midst of God's word to him to give God's word to the people, even though it's going towards the end of a nation, the captivity of a nation that are going to be taken out of their homeland. So we get to see this um, really... Uh, human side of jeremiah which we'll talk about more in a minute as well as him lamenting about all this tragedy all this death all this idolatry that is coming about the nation of israel the nation of judah which was really kind of self-made disaster that god is bringing about because of their idolatry and social injustice And then we're going to take a season to look at prophetic sign acts. These are the weird things that prophets do in the Bible. Uh, like So say for Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel laid on his side for a gajillion days or whatever to represent something. He cooked uh, food over human excrement and then then he said, no, I shouldn't do that. And so he cooked food over cow excrement and stuff like that. But it means something. These are almost like lived out parables. Jeremiah has probably five to ten of these within his writings. So at one season of life, we're going to come together and look at all of these kind of parables, these prophetic sign acts. Why did God ask him to do these things? What do they mean? What is the visceral um, picture of this, that it wasn't just an image that he conjured up in people's minds, but he was actually called to physically do something in his prophetness, that it wasn't just a word, it wasn't just a thought, it wasn't just an oracle, but he was actually physically doing something as he was pronouncing judgment or hope in the midst of the exile. And then we have Jeremiah among prophet, priests, and kings. There were some priests that threw him in a well, that threw him down, the one of him died. He wasn't really popular at all with anybody, especially the kings uh, of his own land, as he said that you guys are going to be completely wiped out and taken away, and the people are going to do that because of your sin, and because of the sin of Manasseh. Um, There's also his uh, struggle with other prophets, which we talked about a little bit before. When you have a prophet versus a prophet, how do you know which prophet is the right prophet, right? Like, how do you actually determine? One is saying, hey, the Lord is going to save us and bring us peace. And then you have this other prophet saying, no, the Lord is going to bring judgment upon the land and upon you, and there will be no peace. So which one is right? Because we don't want to say that we want the truth, right? Well, I don't know if we actually want the truth. But let's say we want the truth. So if there are these two prophets that are prophesying different messages that are supposedly both of Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the Father, the Creator, then how do we listen? Who do we listen to? And Jeremiah struggled with this because he was bringing the word of the Lord. He stood in the presence of the Lord, received the word of the Lord, and was giving it out. But then there were these other prophets that said opposite things to what was being said and so the people wanted to listen to these other prophets rather than him. How does he justify himself? How does he have people hear those things? So we're going to get into all that during this section of the book. And then finally, here and there, scattered throughout, the idea of covenant is a, is a thread throughout all of the Bible. And there's other key things with other prophets that we're going to be looking at. And how the other prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel, how do they talk about covenant? How do they picture covenant the way we have broken covenant, the way God is faithful to covenant, the way that the new covenant is going to be written on our hearts and how new breath is going to be coming into us and making these dry bones come to life? What are those pictures and how can we tie all of those things up into um, one biblical narrative within the major prophets? So those are kind of the sections of Jeremiah that we as cornerstone are going to be going through over the next Let's say nine months. I have no idea, but let's say nine months. Has so everybody got that? Everybody's going to remember that the next nine months or so? Okay, good. There will obviously be, be reminders of that. But let's look at the text today. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 1. I'm going to be reading verses 4 through 19. 4 through 19. This section of the text is how God called Jeremiah... How God equipped Jeremiah, how God empowered Jeremiah in the context of his day, and then how God reinforced Jeremiah. So called, uh, what did I just say? Called, (laughs) equipped, empowered, and then reinforced. Yeah. So let's start verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord." Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold... I am calling all the tribes of the kingdom of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come, and every one shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls, all around, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. But you, Jeremiah, dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall, against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you declares the Lord to deliver you. The word of God. So here we have the calling of Jeremiah in the first uh, four, four uh, sections here, four through eight, where Jeremiah is, is being told by God that, you know, I formed you in the womb and I have called you to this specific work even before you came about being. If you take your bulletins, uh, on the back there's a quote by Eugene Peterson that kind of uh, summarizes this well. And it puts God at the center of it. Again, this is uh, the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is the secondary main character, but the main character in any book of the Bible is always God, um, even when his name's not mentioned. Book of Esther, for all you Bible nerds. Okay, so this is what Eugene Peterson says about the calling of Jeremiah. Jeremiah's life didn't start with Jeremiah. Jeremiah's salvation didn't start with Jeremiah. Jeremiah's truth didn't start with Jeremiah. Jeremiah. He entered the world in which the essential parts of his existence were already ancient history. And so do we. Our identity doesn't begin with us. There's something previous to what we think about ourselves, and that something is what God thinks of us. This means that everything we think and feel is by nature a response, and the one to whom we respond is God. We never speak the first word. We never make the first move. God is always previous. So, even in the midst of going through Jeremiah, we always want to remember that God is the central piece of Jeremiah's life and of the story, just as he is the centerpiece of our lives and our story. That we don't want to get wrapped up in the society and the mores and the themes of our day where everything revolves around us. That's just not true. The things that you are called to in your life are incredibly important and you need to listen and walk in those things. And yet you and I and Cornerstone and the church is not the center of the universe, but Jesus Christ is. And luckily being connected with him, we're being given this awesome responsibility to go and love, and, uh, love others and to worship God. And so God is calling Jeremiah out in verse 4 and 5. And then Jeremiah responds in verse 6 like, there's no way I can do this. I'm a young man. He was probably between the ages of 16 and 20 at this time. The Hebrew word that means young man is uh, kind of, sometimes it's very direct. Other times it is not direct at all. So probably under the age of 20, probably between 16 and 20. And this happened around uh, 627 A.D he says, God, there's no way I can do this. Yes, I might have been in a school of prophets, but I'm young. I don't, I'm inexperienced. I don't know what to do. There's no way I can say this. And this is kind of a prophetic uh, commonality. When we read this in Jeremiah, we also think of Moses, right? How Moses was called to this. How Moses was called to lead the people. And then Moses was like, I can't speak well. I'm not going to be able to do this. And he was an old man at that time. And from uh, the perspective of a human perspective in Jeremiah and the writing of Jeremiah, as this is going on, there's also this uh, accreditation that Jeremiah is not necessarily choosing to be the prophet of the Lord. The Lord is choosing Jeremiah to be his prophet. And so he's saying, to some degree, kind of in the subcontext, that I did not choose this, but the Lord is coming. The Lord spoke to me. The Lord consecrated me from the womb. The Lord said to me, That um, even though I'm only a youth, that he would be with me. And that he is the one sending me. That he is the one giving me the words. He is the one calling me out. Rather than these other false prophets that are just kind of in it for the money. That are just kind of in it for the fame. That are just kind of in it for the heck of it. To feel significant. Rather than actually being sent out by the Lord. And so God says to Jeremiah, don't be afraid for I am with you. I am calling you out. He then moves on to um, equip um, and, sorry, empower Jeremiah in verses 9 through 10. So the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. That he is empowering Jeremiah with the words that he is to speak. Behold, I, God, have put my words in your mouth. I am empowering you, Jeremiah, in order to pluck up and break down, to destroy and to overthrow and to build and to plant. And not only am I, I am empowering you, but I'm also equipping you for this day and age, for this time, for this season. Again, Jeremiah wasn't written directly um, to us, but it was written for us. That this stuff that's going on in Jeremiah has a distinct context that we always need to remember, and yet we glean and hear the word of the Lord out of it. And so in the two visions that Jeremiah gets, he gets one of an almond branch or of an almond tree. If you look up on the screen here, there's some wordplay going on here. Again, Jeremiah is a very poetic book. Fifty percent of the time it's poetry, which will be interesting because poetry isn't always meant to look at words and think about it from like an intellectual standpoint. It's made to be heard and read and experienced in the beauty of it. And it communicates in a different way than prose does. And all through Jeremiah, you have this creative um, uh, literature stuff that is going on. And one of these is in the Hebrew language. He's saying that I see an almond branch, and I am watching over my word. The words there are kind of words that rhyme, that are very close to one another, to kind of link them together. So as he's saying, I see an almond branch, he's saying the word shakade. Everybody say shakade. But then he's saying, I am watching over shakad. Everybody say shakad. So shakade, shakad. They're similar, like there's a poetic parallelism in that that doesn't really get translated well into the English language. Eugene Peterson, in his commentary called The Message, says that um, the best way to think about this, the way for us is saying that, um, what do you see? And Jeremiah says, I see a walking stick. God responds back saying, that's right, I'm going to stick with you. So do you see that? Para- I see a walking stick. That's right, Jeremiah, you see well, because I'm going to stick with you. So that's probably a good way for us to understand it, not being Hebrew people, not knowing the language and understanding the complexities of that. But the point of all this is that uh, God is equipping Jeremiah in the context that this is the stuff that is going to come. And then in verse 13 through 16, which Barry will get to next week, there is this equipping of context that this is what is going to happen. You are empowered to speak the word. This is the context in which you're going to speak because there is going to be this enemy. There is this pot that is uh, brimming with uh, judgment and wrath that is going to be poured out from the north, which as we heard in the video is is Babylon. And God has orchestrated it and is using this to take people into into exile. And this is how you are speaking. This is the place into which you're speaking. This is how I am equipping you. So Jeremiah is called, he is empowered by the word of the Lord in his mouth, he is equipped in the context of his day, and then he's also reinforced, which I'm going to reread. But you, Jeremiah, verse 17, dress yourself for work, literally uh, gird up your loins, gird up your loins, arise and say to them everything I command you. Do not be dismayed, lest I dismay you before them. So don't fear them, we think of Jesus in... Uh, Matthew 6, do not fear uh, man, rather fear God. Do not be dismayed of them, lest I dismay you before them. And I behold, I, Yahweh, I, God, make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land. So even though Jerusalem is going to be coming to an end, that all of their defenses of what is going on are going to be stripped away, Yet God, for Jeremiah, for his prophet, is going to be building him up, is going to be giving him all of these defense, appropriately defense mechanisms, as he protects him against the stuff that's going to come against him. Uh, They will fight against you, the priests, the people, the officials will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord to deliver you. And Jeremiah really needed this reinforcement, as is clear in thinking about who he was. Because in the midst of his prophecy, there's usually not a whole lot of prophets that are popular in the, in the Old Testament or in the New Testament for that. Or if they are, they're, they're popular for a short time being. And then all of a sudden, the crowd changes, the prophet says something they don't like, and the tides turn. Jeremiah so needed this um, reinforcement in the midst of all this because he was going to be a social oddity through his 40 years of preaching. He was going to be the oddball. He was going to be the guy on the streets holding up a sign that you and I would look at and be like, you're crazy. What are you doing out there? Dressed weird, everything else. God calls him in Jeremiah 16 that he wasn't allowed to go to funerals. He wasn't allowed to be married. He wasn't allowed to have children. And he wasn't allowed to uh, enter into festivals or into wedding feasts. And when we get to Jeremiah 16, we'll learn a little bit more about that. But he wasn't able to interact in all of these social ways because of the coming judgment and exile that was coming. And that his life and his word in the midst of judgment, in the midst of hope, was supposed to be a true voice to the people. Turn away from idols over and over again. Even if the exile comes and the exile is coming, Turn towards me. Turn your face towards me. Don't turn your back towards me. And so he was going to be the social oddity. And again, it's really hard for us um, to think about the fact that the word of the Lord, the truth and the hope and the judgment of the Lord can come through means that we typically might not like or that we don't want to listen to. Jeremiah was a social oddity. There's other people in our society that are social oddities. As an illustration of this, I have a Radiohead music video for you. Uh, One of you people here, I won't won't mention who, mentioned this video to me uh, a couple of months ago when it was released. Um, uh, It was like, what's going on with this? And I'm just like, I don't know. It's it's weird. And so I did some research on it. Um, The backstory of it, I'm not doing a base of the backstory. One of the main points that the artist and the producer wanted to make is the fact that we often have fears that are based um, in fear alone and not in any kind of rational or uh, uh, true sense. There are also times when our society can be such a model society and yet be completely and utterly wrong. And then somebody would dare to speak against that model society and we look at him or her like they're weird. Like, Why, this is normal, this should be okay. All this stuff that's happening, we're having fun, you know, this is happening. Why can't you get on board with this? And this is like a picture of Jeremiah as the social oddity that's saying, just knock it off, just get on board and have fun and do this and do that and everything else. So this song is called Burn the Witch. Um, It's in claymation and I hope you enjoy it. If you have questions about that video, I have a ton more to talk about that video that I'm not going to do now. But the one main thing I want you to get from the midst of that is that there was this model village happening. There was this thing where everybody amongst the people, like, this is how we do it. We we decorate the gallows, you know. We do this thing and that thing that um, is completely normal to to us. Um, That's just part of our life. And then this other person comes in, and he's saying, you know what? This isn't isn't the way things should be. There's a lot of weird stuff going on here. There's a a lot of injustice happening here. There's a lot of uh, worship of other gods happening here. Um, And rather than us listening to that person, what ends up happening is that we try to kill them. We put them in a big wicker man and set it on fire. And this is Jeremiah's thing all throughout his life, right? That he um, was constantly being persecuted. He was constantly struggling with his call. And yet he uh, continued in the word of the Lord that... uh, that God reinforced within him. And it was because he had the right threshold, that he had an established threshold. And what do I mean by threshold? Who here listens uh, to This American Life? Does anybody here listen to This American Life? A couple people. So it's a podcast. Um, There's also this uh, podcast called Revisionist History um, that they go back in some... uh, quote-unquote well-known versions of history they go back and reevaluate that to see what kind of new information not as far as rewriting history but as far as what actually happened um, and on one of these podcasts uh, that was recently he talked uh, about the idea of threshold and it all had to do with basketball but not really with basketball so in March 1962 one of the greatest basketball games of all time was played I was played in Hershey Pennsylvania uh, Chamberlain was there he scored 100 points that round um, it was the Philadelphia, it wasn't 76, the Warriors, Philadelphia Warriors. Um, and so that record has never been touched as of yet. Uh, not very many people have even gotten close to it. So Chamberlain, greatest ba- one of the greatest basketball players of all time, except he stunk at one thing really, 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 really bad stunk. What was it? Yeah, foul, foul, foul shoots, foul shoots, foul shooting, <laughs> foul shots, foul shots. The year before, or during that year, he decided to change his method of shooting free throws. And so instead of the, you know, he started doing the granny. Bear, I'm going to throw this at you. And he started to do the granny, and he started to make them. A lot. And that time there, I think his normal average was 42%. season before, for that game, he was 87% from the foul line. And so he changed his method. Uh, there's a guy, I don't know his first name, his name's Barry, that kind of says that this is the way all NBA players should be shooting basketball from the, from the foul line. Because you don't walk around like this, you know what I mean? But where are your, your arms normally? They're normally down here. So it's a much more natural way to have a ball down here. And yeah, it takes some practice, but then you can do the granny shot and you can end up making a ton more uh, free throws than if you try that way. Except nobody does that. And Chamberlain, after that season, actually went back to shooting uh, overhand or whatever you want to call that. And the reason of that was because of his threshold. He was being made fun of for throwing in a granny way or a sissy way or a foolish way. That even though the way that he was doing it was better, the peer pressure around him, he knew it was better. There was proof that it was better. Even though that happened, he still went back to the old way because of the peer pressure. And so he went from being great at the foul line that year to stinking it up from the foul line the rest of the years. And, and so the, the podcast would talk about this idea of threshold. And what happens is that if you have a, a, a high threshold, okay, um, there you can, you need, uh, the threshold is the number of people who have to do something before you join in in doing it, okay? So Jeremiah had a high threshold, because everybody around him was doing it the wrong way, and yet Jeremiah was um, reinforced to do it the right way, to not speak lies, to not worship other idols, but rather to stay the course of what God has told him to do. So in doing wrong, Jeremiah had a high threshold where he didn't give in to the crowd unlike Chamberlain and, un, and mostly like all other basketball players in college and NBA because they don't, you don't see, you see two people I think th- do the granny, the granny throw at the, at the free throw line. And that's because their threshold is low. But Jeremiah's threshold was high in that regard. But Jeremiah's threshold was low in the regard of doing good. That he only needed one person to tell him what was right And that that voice, among the millions of other voices that were going on, um, uh, among all of the other voices that had power and authority, amongst the other priests, the prophets, the kings, his family, the people of his city, all of those voices were telling him one thing. And yet God spoke another. And it was because of that one voice that he heard that he was reinforced with over and over again that he stayed the course. Now, they say psychologically and from a social perspective, those who have um, high thresholds that don't follow the crowd or low thresholds that they do what they think is right, um, they're kind of jerks. That they're not uh, into diplomacy a whole lot. They typically don't feel a whole lot. They typically don't care. They want to do what is right, and they'll get it done by any means. That can be a good thing. That can also be a bad thing. The interesting thing about Jeremiah, again, going back to him as a human, is that he didn't shut down. He didn't become apathetic. He didn't become a stoic. He is the what prophet again? The weeping prophet. That in the midst of giving out truth, in the midst of proclaiming hope and justice and judgment and exile and tearing down and building back up, that there was also this sweet spirit about him that he was broken over and over again throughout the story. He was broken over and over again by what was happening in the exile. He was broken over and over again by the fact that his city was going to be destroyed. He was broken over and over again with his call, like, God, why did you call me for this message? I'm here on earth for 60 years and I spend 40 of my years doing this. And there's this back and forth. And yet he's like, this word of the Lord is in my bones. He says it is in my bones. There is this fire in my heart. There is this um, flame in my bones and I cannot keep it in. That I have to give it out. There's terror all over me. On every side there is terror. And yet I need to stay the course because of the word of the Lord to me. And so Jeremiah here shows us the fact that God's voice in the midst of a million other voices It's still the sweetest. It is still the truest. It is still the thing that reinforces us the most in our life of faith. And in the midst of so many other voices that want to tell us other things nowadays, that we are called to remember the voice of Christ, the voice of the Spirit, the voice of the Father. Team, you guys can come back up. It's not that Jeremiah had no fear when he was going through all of this. Like I said, he complained He lamented. He walked as a person, as a human, through this calling of God. And sometimes you're like, is Jeremiah kind of turning his back on God? Is is Jeremiah getting lippy with God? Maybe. And maybe that's just part of being human and being called to a task that is really, really hard and yet is ultimately fulfilling, that is ultimately in the very, very end joyful. We don't know how Jeremiah died. We know that he was kidnapped from Jerusalem, and he didn't want to go to Egypt, but people tied him up and took him to Egypt. And so he went back to the place of slavery that is in the Israel mind, Judah's mind. That was the place of slavery in order to escape uh, destruction, and he didn't want to do that. He wanted to stay in Jerusalem. Uh, There is, uh, not myth, but legend, I guess, that he was stoned to death. Um, Or it could be that he just died in Egypt uh, of old age also. We don't know. But it's not like he didn't have any fear of what his calling was. But he wasn't a slave to that fear. That again, being courageous in the gospel and entrusting the Lord doesn't mean that at all times we have everything figured out and that we know everything and that we're super happy all the time or anything like that. What it does mean is that courage is that in the midst of fear, that we remember the one voice that calls us out of that fear, that calls us to his side and that calls us to his heart, both in truth and in spirit, both in love and in discipline. And it's being rooted and grounded in that place that we as a church live out of. And that was the place that Jeremiah lived out of. And he wrestled and he struggled. I think that's really going to be a great thing for us as cornerstone to experience as we go through Jeremiah. That there's both this calling, but there's also this weeping. There's also this um, these tears that are uh, so close in the text that you're not actually sure if it's Jeremiah weeping at this point or if it's God weeping at this point. Like there's this back and forth poetically about that. Is this God actually crying over his people? Yeah. Is this Jeremiah crying over his people? Yeah. And again, to... Uh, get into that heart of God to feel what he feels even in the midst of junk happening and of exile and uh, to cling to him. So I'm looking forward to going through the book of Jeremiah. There'll be more in the upcoming four weeks about Jeremiah and a little bit of direction shepherding for myself how we need to read Jeremiah. Looking forward to that. Barry, thank you for next week for doing the history stuff. That'll be sweet. Nikki, thank you for doing that. Um, That being said, let's stand um, and worship. As we sing this song, I want you to also think, um, so we're going to sing No Longer Slaves because part of the verse in it comes from Jeremiah. Great, think about yourself and God as you're thinking about this, but also think about Jeremiah. Think about the fact that um, um, Jeremiah was in the midst of exile, and yet in this song, the bridge to this song is an exodus thought. And so what does it mean in the the midst of our exile to also have God come and free us from the certain bonds and the certain fears and the certain uh, ways we give ourselves over to slavery? And what kind of love does that connotate uh, to us from God the Father? So Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the book and for the prophet, and we thank you that you are the central character in all of this, God. Help us to receive um, in our minds and our hearts as we go through Jeremiah Um, Help us to remember to always be turning towards you. God, we ask you to turn our hearts to you. Um, There are so many times that we think we're turning in the right direction, and it's not. And so we need your mercy and your grace to come forth. And we confess that we need that. Again, we thank you for the table that um, sets us right, that helps us to remember the cross and your love for us um, and the hope that is in us. who you are, Jesus. So yeah. we thank you for today. I pray that you would bless Cornerstone um, as we worship and as we go out from today. And that, yeah, that you would be with us, um, calling us out as a body of Christ, uh, whoever you're calling Cornerstone to be, that you would empower us, equip us, and reinforce that calling within us, God. That we would worship you with everything and that we would love others in our city, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. Pray this in your name. Amen.
2: Okay, for the benediction, you can either keep your eyes open or you can close them, whatever your preference. God, we as a body agree that your judgment is good. It is right, it is just, it is fair. We agree that your judgment is an aspect of your love. Through your judgment comes right living Thank you. We, God, agree that we desire to walk together in a new understanding of your judgment. So we humble ourselves under your government and how you're going to walk with us through Jeremiah. So we follow you as our guide to understanding and living more fully in your judgment and love. Go with God.